I want to thank you, Colonial, for uh, being willing to come out to sing, to pray, and to listen to preaching, even though the preaching will be admittedly less skillful than you're used to. (laughs) But I want to thank you, brothers and sisters, for being a church who just wants to hear the scriptures taught, regardless of who's teaching them. That gives me great confidence that you're going to listen to what I have to say this morning. But what impels me to speak to you today from the scriptures is an unshakable conviction that these words which I wish to expose to you are powerful in and of themselves to affect transformation in you and to convince you of their own truthfulness. So that's what I'm standing on. I know that that's what you're standing on as well. And so with that in mind, let's, let's look at the scriptures together. So I have two goals today. One is to help you understand Colossians 1, verses 1 through 8. So you can turn there in your Bibles, and we'll, we'll get to that in just one moment. And uh, a second goal of mine, a far less uh, goal, but a goal nonetheless, is to cause you to love the preaching of our pastors, Brent and James, even more <laughs> after today. So I'm teaching through the letter of, the Coloss- of Colossians to the teens on Wednesday evenings. And we're working through the letter. We'll be working through the letter the rest of the year. Um, but I thought that since I was already thinking about this passage, uh, that, that, and to explain it to the teens, um, it would make a lot of sense to, to rework it and uh, make it fit to, to, to preach to, to you, the church body. So as I get opportunity from time to time, I'm going to make it my aim to preach through the book of Colossians to you. That might be a two-year process or an eight-year process, so I hope you can uh, take good notes and remember what I said the next year I preach. But uh, by, So by way of introduction to the letter, I want to paint for you a likely scenario for why Paul felt compelled to write this letter. I'll read the introductory gre- uh, greetings, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to point out a few clues in uh, the, the text of Colossians that, that help paint that scenario. And then I'll spend most of my time in verses 3 through verses 8. So if you look in, uh, in your Bibles at verse, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Paul was authorized by Jesus Christ. This is, um, th- the significance of that is that he was a sent one by Jesus. The reason that Paul introduces himself this way as an apostle, someone sent by God, authorized by Jesus, and appointed by God's pleasure, not his own, is to assure the Colossians that he's qualified to speak to the issues that they're facing, right? So this isn't just a, this isn't a power play. He wants them to know, listen, you can trust what I have to say about this. Well, the Colossians are facing issues like, who should they believe? Epaphras told the Colossians one thing. If you look in your Bible at verse 7, it says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, Right, so Epaphras was teaching them something. It was the, the message of the gospel. So I think that Epaphras was delegated by Paul to plant the churches in the Lycus Valley, one of which was Colossae. He was likely their shepherd or their pastor. Now, he's teaching the Colossians the gospel, referenced here, verse 7. And in verse 8, his making their love known to Paul and Timothy. And then in, in chapter 4, verse 12, we read that he's one of you, which I take to mean that he's a Colossian himself. He comes from Colossae. And in that same verse, chapter 412, 
he's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. In the very next verse, verse 13, he's working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and for those in Hierapolis. All these clues push me in the direction of seeing Epaphras as their pastor. So who should they believe? Epaphras is telling them one thing, but some among them are telling them another thing. Turn back to chapter 2. Take a look at, a look at verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible-sounding arguments. Look down at verse 8 in chapter 2. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, or an empty deceitful philosophy. Look down at verse 16. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Down at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Should they believe what Epaphras taught them about the hope kept safe in heaven for them, about the grace of God that reconciles sinners through faith in Jesus, or should they believe what some among them are telling them, that being forgiven and reconciled to God requires a little more than just faith in Christ, but also requires following certain rules and having certain spiritual experiences? Well, as we continue in verse 1, Paul isn't traveling alone. And as we'll see later in Colossians, um, he isn't just in prison alone either. He, he has someone with him. We see Timothy, our brother. Timothy's one of Paul's delegates. He accompanies, Paul's on many, uh, he accompanies Paul on many of his journeys. Look at the way that um, Paul describes him. He sees how he refers to him. He's a brother in Christ. See the way that he refers to the Colossians in verse 2. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. See the way that he refers to God in verse 3. He's the father of Christ. For Paul, he sees practically every relationship coordinate to Christ in some way. Even the false teachers, they've lost connection with the head. Right? Christ is the centerpiece for Paul and the way he thinks about people. As Christians, we're family, and the reason why we're family is because we have Christ in common. Right? And that's the most important relationship about us. So, Paul addresses his audience. says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. He describes them as holy. That's what saints means. They've been set apart and chosen by God for his purposes. And they're persisting in their faith. They're faithful. He describes them as being in Christ. Listen to this. In Christ is the most identity-redefining modifier a person can have about them. Right? It's the most significant identity-redefining modifier you can have on yourself as being in Christ. And on earth, they live in the city of Colossae. It would seem that Epaphras has traveled far from Colossae to find Paul where he's being kept in prison. I think that's in Rome. And he needs to get Paul's advice about the issue that's facing the Colossian church. So the letter we have is probably Paul's response to this report from Epaphras about how they're doing and what issues they're facing. So as he starts his letter, after the greetings... There are two ways that he responds to how the Colossians are doing and what they're facing. It's really one response with uh, two parts. He responds by writing a prayer for them. 
with both thanksgiving to God, and that's three through eight, what we're going to be looking at this morning, and then a request to God on their behalf, and that's verses nine through 14 for our next time. Have you ever had this experience? Um, someone comes up to you, and they, and they, uh, they, they want to pray for you, and they, so they pray for you, and they begin thanking God for what they see in your life, what he's done for you, and th- uh, just different, different things about you. So imagine with me, if you will, a man walks into a counseling office. We're going to call him Connor. Connor needs advice for how to handle a situation with one of his employees. All right, Connor owns a small convenience store, and one of his three employees, uh, his name is Eric. He's a fellow believer. He claims that one day at work, he caught a glimpse through a cracked door from the back room of Eric pocketing some money after a transaction with a customer. He had hoped that he didn't just see what he thought he saw. But by the end of the night, when he counted the till down, he noticed there was $50 missing from the till. So he went to Eric, asked him about it, confronted him about it, but he denied it. He said, no, no, there was a, uh, there was a, a mistaken transaction where a, a transaction got doubled somehow. What should I do, Connor asked the counselor. I don't even care about the money. I just want... Eric to be honest with me. He's a, he's a believer. Like, I don't want him to lie. Well, so the counselor says, you know, you know, hopefully we can get to the bottom of this. Maybe, maybe we'll have Eric come in and we can talk with him. But before we do anything, let's pray together. And so, and so the counselor prays, says, Lord, we thank you so much that you're a God who sees and that you love the truth. I thank you for Connor's love for his fellow brother, Eric, and his desire, not just for money back, but to see Eric love truth more than stuff. Lord, that's evidence that Jesus is real to Connor. Thank you for the friendship that these two men have. Thank you that we can hope that your spirit in Eric can convict him. Please give us wisdom, we pray. Amen. Now, in this made-up story, the way the counselor thanks God for what God was doing in Connor's life wasn't random or generic, right? He wasn't saying, thank you, Lord, for the weather last night. Um, Thank you for uh, being the one who heals our diseases. Great, true things. But he wasn't wasn't even um, having a private conversation with God either. It wasn't a private thanks either. Like, thank you, Lord, for healing my wife's shoulder. Lord, will you give me success in my business so I can bless others? He was thanking God for particular things relevant to the situation that Connor was facing. Well, at the same time, his prayer to God was assuring Connor of things that are true about God and relevant to a situation, right? This is precisely what I think Paul is doing with his Thanksgiving. This isn't a generic Thanksgiving section, right? It's not a private Thanksgiving between he and God. He's thanking God for things that are particularly relevant to the Colossians, what they're facing. And part of the purpose for writing it down and and sending it to Colossae is to have the secondary effect of assuring the Colossians of certain things, right? So through his prayer of thanks to God, he intends to assure the Colossians that they have truly received the true gospel. So let's read Paul and Timothy's response to the report that they heard. Look at verse 3. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. 
because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, as I walk through these verses and explain why it is that Paul is thankful, hopefully you're going to see that Paul's thanksgiving is directed to God for what the gospel is doing, yes. But it's also carefully crafted to give the, the Colossians much-needed assurance that they've truly received the true gospel, and they don't need anything else. The first uh, clause here contains the main verb of the whole section. Everything that follows in the next five verses goes into further detail about what Paul and Timothy are thankful for. Paul is saying that whenever he and Timothy get together to pray, which I would say is probably daily, they never fail to thank God for what they've heard about the Colossians. So what have they heard? Specifically, their thanks is grounded in two things that they've heard about them. The Colossians' faith and the Colossians' love. Look in verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, when Epaphras informed Paul about how things were going at Colossae, he told them that they were trusting Jesus. Jesus was the focus of their faith. Now, as I've alluded to already, some among the Colossians are trying to take their focus off of Christ and fix it on other things like food, rules, experiences. But Paul is thankful to God that in the face of all the pressures around them, their faith remains fixed in Christ. Do you know um, how Epaphras and Paul could tell that the Colossians' faith was genuine? If you look in, your, if you look in the verse, it's the second grounds for their thanksgiving. It's the love that they have for all the saints. There's an inseparable link between authentic faith in Jesus in one hand and having love for one another. Do you remember what Jesus taught his disciples in the book of John, in the gospel of John in chapter 13? He said, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples. Can you finish it? Yeah, if you have love for one another. So Epaphras and Paul were confident that the Colossians' trust in Christ was real because there was also the accompanying evidence of concrete displays of love for one another. So the reason why the Colossians had evident love for one another, such an evident love for one another, is because, yes, they were trusting in Jesus, but Paul goes on to connect their love to a more particular source. Look at the very next phrase. See that word, because? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. What effect would a hope kept stored away safe in heaven that's what that verb means, right? To be laid up, it means it's, it's saved and kept, kept um, safe. What effect would that kind of hope have on the Colossians? Well, as we're going to learn later in the letter, the Colossians were being faced with an empty, deceitful philosophy that wrongly focused on keeping certain rules and having certain experiences in order to guarantee a right standing with God. When Paul reminds them that their hope is stored away safe in heaven— it would have had the effect of reminding them that their standing with God cannot be touched by things like food and drink and rule-keeping and having visions, how often they pray or read the scripture or how spiritual they feel at any given moment. Their standing with God, if they're trusting in Christ, is secure. This certain hope that they have for a future with Christ in a resurrection body, sinless, for all eternity, has present consequences. 
It's precisely because of their hope that they're freed to no longer live for themselves. But they're freed, they're freed to no longer live with a self-absorbed focus on life, since they don't have to worry about appeasing God or earning his acceptance. They're free to live out of love for God, and they're free to focus on loving others. So colonial brothers, sisters, does your hope kept safe in heaven for you does that compel you to love others? Does that free you to love others? To love one another here in this field? Does the fact that you're standing with God in Christ is secure, does that free you to love others instead of being primarily concerned about yourself? Paul is making an explicit connection here. Look at that word, because of the hope that this is precisely what a secured hope produces in people, love for one another. So where did the Colossians hear about this hope? All right, let's keep looking in in your text here. The second half of verse 5, of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So this, when he, when he says of this, he's referring to the hope. Of this hope you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. This word of truth that gives them hope, it isn't new. It's what they had heard in the beginning. It's what they heard before. It's what they were already taught. Not only that, but what they had heard before was the true message. That point is really important, okay? That they they had heard the word of the truth. Because Paul will soon enough warn the Colossians about being taken captive by a deceitful philosophy. He wants them to be assured that the message they heard was the true one. Now, to further assure the Colossians that they had truly received the gospel, Paul assures them of three things. First, he assures them in in the first half of verse 6, it's the same gospel that all the churches around the known world have received. Do you see that? Which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. Now, I put a period in my Bible after the word world. Because I think Paul is starting a new thought with the word it. All right, this, this message about Christ that they heard wasn't some homespun fable from some witch doctor in the region of Phrygia, okay? It's the true word. It's the message that is being received and spread throughout the whole world. Okay, not only that, but secondly, the same gospel is powerfully changing the world. Not only people in Colossae. All right, so it's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does in, in, among you. So it's bearing fruit and increasing implied in the world as it also is doing among you. That is, it's producing works of love and faith in their congregation. And it's making more and more converts. More and more people are coming to faith in Christ as they hear this message. Okay, not only in Colossae, but everywhere in the world that this gospel is going. So Paul's point in describing the Colossians' shared experience with the rest of the world regarding the spread and transformation that the gospel is effecting is to confirm to them that they were indeed taught the true message. 
what they had heard from Epaphras is exactly the same message that is spreading all over the known world and producing fruit and increasing. Proof that it's truly from God and it is powerful. This philosophy that they're hearing from some, it's, that isn't con- it's not consistent with what Epaphras taught them, and it isn't being universally spread and powerfully changing people's lives. Don't let it shake you, Paul is implying. It's not what you heard through Epaphras. It's not spreading throughout the world. It's not transforming people because it's not truly from God. And the third way he wants to assure them that they've truly received the true gospel is that the messenger from whom they heard the gospel is trustworthy. Look at the second half of verse 6 through 8. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Paul wants the Colossians to know that when they heard about the grace of God, another term for the message of the gospel, when they heard about that from Epaphras, from Epaphras, they heard it correctly. They heard it in truth. They understood it correctly because in Paul's estimation, Epaphras is a faithful minister of Christ. So the fact that the Apostle Paul, the one sent and authorized by Jesus, is telling them, look, you can trust Epaphras and what he ta- taught you, that would be a great assurance to the Colossians that what they heard was right and what they heard was true especially if they're being faced with some in the church who are telling them to believe a message that doesn't quite line up with what Epaphras is saying. And it also doesn't make much of Christ, which Epaphras is really big on doing. There in the last line of the verse, you can see um, why I I think that Paul is writing in a response to a report from Epaphras, because Epaphras has informed Paul and Timothy about the Colossians' authentic, spirit-inspired love. So, Colonial, what about, what about you? What about us? How can you be sure that you have truly received the true gospel? My goal for today is I want to I give you um, three ways that you can be assured that you have, too, truly, assured, uh, truly received the true gospel. And so the first one, if you look in verse 4, this is where I'm getting this from. You can be assured that you truly received the true gospel if you are trusting in Christ, really simple. If you're trusting in Christ today, then, then you've really, you've, you've got the real thing. Have you come to trust in Jesus? Have you come to trust Jesus as the one who made you and designed you to be just who you are? As the one who knows everything about you and who loves you deeply? Have you come to trust Jesus as the one who came to earth to die for your sins so that you could be forgiven? As the one who took up his own life again and left the grave so that you could have confidence that you'll be raised too when you die? Have you come to trust Jesus as the one who went back to heaven, sending his spirit to enable us to live for the glory of someone other than us, for the glory of God? Have you come to trust Jesus as the one who will return one day, right all wrongs, and be the judge of all of those who have failed to render God the worship that he's due. Well, I want to I take just a quick moment 
um, to illustrate what it means to, to trust Jesus. All right, I think some of us could um, could benefit from this, and, and and even if we're we're so familiar with this language, man, will you let this uh, challenge your thinking? So I've got two chairs up here. This chair represents me and everything I do, my person, my name, everything I've done, all the good things that I've done. And the scripture teaches us in Hebrews that it's been appointed to all men once to die. And after this, there's going to be a judgment day. There's going to be a reckoning. And at that judgment day, the question is, what are you relying on to be accepted by God? What are you relying on? So this first chair, this represents my name, my works, my life. Okay? And this second chair over here represents the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now the Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ, he came and he lived a righteous life, perfectly obedient to what God required, perfectly in submission to his Father. And so his life was righteous. But it wasn't just that his life was righteous. He also came on a mission to die on a cross to pay for the sins of the world. Right? So, so if this chair represents the person and the work of Christ, to trust Christ doesn't look like this. That's a solid chair. I, I'm confident it can hold me. I'm not expressing any trust in that chair right now. I'm expressing 100% of my trust in this chair. Okay, to trust Christ means a cessation or a stopping of relying on myself, a transfer, and then relying completely on something else. So to trust in Jesus means to stop trusting in your own name. Stop trusting in your own deeds, your own works to commend you before God and to rely completely on the person and work of Jesus. And that, brothers and sisters, is exactly what the Colossians were manifesting. That's what Epaphras told them. They're trusting in Jesus. And you can see it because of their love for one another. Are you relying on Christ? I hope that you are. Secondly, look in verse 4 again. I want to make another application from that verse. You can be assured that you have truly received the true gospel if you're loving one another. Brothers and sisters, we can be really quick to say that we love one another in the way, in our, in our um, public prayers, in our songs together, perhaps in our discussions and ABS groups. But how are we doing with concrete displays of love that are sourced in who we are in Christ, that are sourced in a secure hope that's, that's, that's stored away for us in heaven. I want to share with you an example um, from my personal life of a concrete act of love that was, that was um, done for me. Several months ago, I injured my back. I never could have expected how much a back injury would alter your daily life. <laughs> and so for many of you out there who know back pain, now I can empathize. I couldn't before. Now I can. Well, things that easy got really hard. Or you just can't do some things. 
just so happened at that exact same time, I started receiving big chunks of wood and logs to process, to be able to heat my home over the winter. And so I have this enormous pile of logs and wood that needs to be processed and put, split and put into a dry shed. Well, it turns out that an injured back and an enormous pile of lumber don't mix very well. Well, eventually some word got around that I had a big pile of logs to cut and split and that my back was injured. And people started to text me and offer to my family to come and split my wood. To be fully transparent, I also shamelessly asked my ABS, would you come and help me split my wood? Well, I asked some, but others just invited themselves and came and wanted to help. Saturday is a valuable time, right? It's a time to relax, to get caught up on work, um, to get extra stuff done, to go out of town. But these people came over to my house on a Saturday and spent a large part of the day helping a guy with a bad back get caught up on his own personal chores. Guys, that's an act of concrete love that, that is an evidence that, that Jesus is real to people. That's the kind of stuff. All right, that's just one example that happened in my life. Can people see that your faith in Christ is genuine because of the acts of love that accompany it? Can people see that your hope is kept safe in heaven? not anchored to fragile investments on earth by the ways that you love one another. All right, and third, uh, thirdly, lastly, briefly, one more application from verses 7 and 8. I want to assure you, I want you to be assured that you have truly received the true gospel. Listen closely to this. To the extent that the gospel you claim to believe lines up with the gospel that Jesus authorized. So just as the Colossians could be assured that the gospel that they had been taught was true because it had come from Epaphras, a man whom Paul said was a faithful minister of Christ. Just like, like they could trust Epaphras because Paul sent him and he was authorized by Jesus, you and I can have confidence that we've come to embrace the true gospel rightly to the degree that our message lines up with what Paul taught, the gospel that Jesus authorized him to teach. In fact, I think that we can have even greater confidence that the gospel we've come to embrace is the true one since we, we can examine the whole scriptures. If Epaphras' teaching of the gospel of the Colossians was trustworthy, and I think it was, the gospel that we have recorded in the pages of the Bible is an even more sure testimony of what the gospel of Jesus is. This is why I asked that 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11 was, was read. Um, that's perhaps one of the clearest articulations of the gospel that we have in the, in the scripture. How well do you know that message? All right, here's, here's my last point. How well do you know that message? Do you know that message well enough that when someone tries to persuade your conscience that God expects something more from you, or he expects you to do these things and those things in order to be acceptable to him. 
Do you know that message so well that when you, when you hear that, when people try to persuade your conscience otherwise, you can stand firm and not shift from the hope of the gospel? Do you know the gospel that well? I hope you can be assured that you have received the true gospel um, from this text. And I hope that as a result, you are trusting in Christ, that you are loving one another, and that you are standing firm in what you've heard. Um, with that, I'm going to pray. I'll ask the musicians to come up and lead us. You can find the text to the Reformation song. We'll sing that. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we have so much to be grateful for. And as fickle human beings, sometimes it's, all it takes is a, a beautiful day to, to realize that. Oh, but God, help us to be Christians who are good at giving thanks in every circumstance. Lord, will you please apply this text to our lives by your spirit? Please continue to apply it to my own heart, to my family, that we would stand firm in our understanding of the gospel, that it would produce, that it would continue to maintain faith in Christ and, and genuine acts of love toward our brothers and sisters. We love you, Jesus, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.